Um, Our scripture reading uh, today comes from Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And it says this, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him. And he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Whoa, I am, I can hear myself. So, all right, it's a pleasure for me to be here today to be sharing the word with you all. I actually realized that uh, as I was preparing this, that this is only the second time that I have preached in, in front of actual living people uh, in, I, th- I think, since mid-2019, something around, sometime around there. So it's been a while. Uh, so you guys look a lot better than you do on Zoom. I want to affirm that. Uh, with, but with that said, I do want to also welcome the people who are uh, joining us online. We're sad that you're not here, but we understand that you can't make it. And uh, when Russell invited me to preach this series here at Reunion, uh, I was really excited because I really love what Reunion is doing. I love what uh, you're doing by going through Mark uh, very slowly, right? I think the analogy that I've heard Russell use is like sports, right? Sports are fun because they're fast, it's high pace. Um, in the same way, the Gospel of Mark is very fast, right? If, if you read Mark, he's constantly saying immediately, 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 things are moving fast in Mark. But uh, just like in sports, uh, sometimes you really enjoy the slow motion. I think that's the analogy that Russell uses, right, of kind of slowing things down and being able to really appreciate the kind of athleticism of the athletes, and in this case, the, the, the work that Jesus is doing, right, being able to admire and see, like, wow, this Jesus is being really intentional. And we, and we get to do that today. Um, today we're in Mark chapter 2. I love how uh, Reunion's been going for, like, what, two months now, and you guys made it to chapter 2. Congratulations, you guys made it through one chapter of Mark. But really, like, it, it, it's exciting because today we are looking um, at the call of Levi, right? What it means to follow Jesus. But before I share that, I actually want to uh, share a little story. Um, earlier this year, uh, I went to the doctor's office, and I forget why I went there. I think I had some sort of pain in my knee or something. Uh, my body is falling apart. But, uh, you know, I had my appointment, my meeting, and the doctor right before I'm about to leave says, hey, Ben, hold on for one second, and he pulls up my chart, and he's looking at something, and he turns to me and says, Ben, you know, um, don't be offended, which, you know, is what someone tells you right before they say something offensive, <laughs> so I'm bracing myself, and he says, Ben, don't be offended, but, um, you know, based on your height and um, your, your weight, you actually qualify for the vaccine. Now, this is earlier in the year before you had to, you know, not everyone could get the vaccine. You had to be a frontline worker or you had to have, you know, some sort of medical condition. And uh, so, of course, I, you know, my medical condition was being obese, <laughs> which, you know, I, I was like thankful for. I was excited, but I, I thought about that afterwards of what it means to um, 
kind of hear that and why, why he had to tell me, don't be offended, right? And I think that that's because I think he's aware that a lot of people, uh, they, when they, even when they go to the doctor, they, there's a tendency to want to hold back something about yourself, right? Which is weird, right? Because when you go to the doctor, sometimes you have to get naked in front of them. They see everything about you, and they literally have like, information that you don't even know about yourself. And yet, we have this, this desire not to be fully revealed, right? We don't want to be completely known. And I think this is why that, well, I don't, I don't want to assume that you do this, but I will confess that I do this, where, you know, when they ask you these questions um, about yourself, you know, these standard questions, I, um, I don't want to say I, I lie, but I, I pad the truth about myself, right? So they'll ask me, like, so Ben, you know, how often uh, do you exercise? And the answer is never, maybe once in a while, walking up the stairs out of breath. But of course I say, oh, I, I exercise regularly, right? Never mind how, how often regularly is. Or they'll ask me about my, my diet, and they'll ask me, you know, like, oh, so, like, you know, do you, how's your diet? Do you feel like you're eating healthy? And, I, and the answer isn't, well, last night I had a McDonald's after I had tacos. The answer is, oh, yeah, you know, I get a mix of fruits and vegetables and meat and stuff like that. And, of course, the question that we all hated answering, especially during the pandemic, which is, how many drinks do you have a week? <laughs> and I would say, like, one to two, leaving off bottles at the end. <laughs> And I bring this up because I think there is something about um, being human that we don't like to be revealed, right? Even though this is true, I mean, even though if they knew, if my doctor knew more about me, if my doctor could see more about the way I live my life, it would just benefit me because he's there to help me out. We don't want to be revealed. And, and I bring this up, one, um, to assure you that I have been vaccinated, but also more importantly to, uh, to kind of set the stage in talking about what it means look at the story and that today is we're going to be looking at a story about following Jesus and how we are revealed and then we are transformed and made whole. So let me just look at the passage again. So I'm going to read it again. Mark chapter 2 verses 13 to 17. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as, he was, and as he reclined at table at his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly God, I pray that as we look at your text, as we look at this story, as we learn about your son Jesus Christ, Lord, we would be revealed, that we would be able to see ourselves and know that you see us, that you love us, that you desire to transform us and to make us whole. God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, the story is about Jesus' followers. It's about Jesus calling Levi to follow him, but it's also about the other people who were following him. 
specifically the, the scribes and the Pharisees who objected to who Jesus had following him. They, they object to the people who are following Jesus, these sinners, these tax collectors. And they, they ask Jesus' disciples about it, and Jesus answers, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, it came not to call the righteous but sinners. Now when we hear that, we think that the divide that Jesus is laying down, the divide that is being presented to us, is about those who are well and sick, right? You would think at first hearing that, you know what, there are two groups of people. There are those who are well and those who are sick. But in fact, the divide is actually between all people who are sick, right? Everyone needs a doctor. There's no one who says who's, it's always healthy. But the divide is between those who know they're sick and those who just think that they're well, right? The divide is actually between those who are sick and those who think they're well even though they are sick. And actually what we see here is that translates because there are actually two groups of people following Jesus, right? There are many, it says there are many following Jesus, but there are actually two different groups of people following Jesus, right? On one hand, we have followers who are sick, but they think they're well. And here I am talking about the scribes and Pharisees. Now just a note, uh, some translations say scribes of the Pharisees, that preposition, um, or not preposition, I don't know my grammar, but uh, can be translated and or of, I'm just going to use and. But there are these people there, right? these holy people, these scribes, these Pharisees, these teachers, these people who are respected in society. And what's important to understand is that they, too, were following Jesus, right? They weren't following, when I say follow, I mean literally they were following Jesus where he went. The reason why these scribes and Pharisees are in the room, present, and asking the disciples why Jesus hangs out with the tax collectors and sinners is because they were also following Jesus where he went. So they were curious about him. They wanted to know what is this new rabbi on the scene teaching. They were curious about these crowds that were following. So they were literally following Jesus as well. It's not like they were walking by Levi's house. They looked through the window and they're like, oh, there's Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They were in the room as well. They were following Jesus as well. And they, and, but their question not only reveals the fact that they were in the room, not only reveals that, you know, they were present and following Jesus, but it actually presents uh, their, it, it shows us what they thought of themselves in relation to Jesus. When they asked the question, they asked Jesus why he was eating with tax collectors and sinners, the reason why they asked this question is because they themselves would never eat with tax collectors and sinners. The scribes, the Pharisees, they thought of themselves as holy people. They thought of themselves as better than these sinners, these tax collectors, these betrayers of our people. And so because they were better, they kept themselves separate, right? They said, you know, these people are dirty, these people are unholy, unclean, I'm going to keep myself separate. And when you look at Jesus, they see a fellow rabbi, right? This is early on in Jesus' ministry. They're still trying to learn about him, but they know he's, a, he's, a, he's an up-and-coming rabbi, he's new on the scene, but he's still one of us, right? He's a rabbi. So why, if all of us are acting one way, why is Jesus acting a different way? It's not that they looked at Jesus, because if they thought of Jesus as just a regular Joe Schmo off the road, off the, off the street, they wouldn't care what Jesus did, because many people would congregate and uh, associate with sinners and tax collectors, right? That was their bread and butter. If they didn't have that, they didn't have anyone to, like, yell at and be holier then. But because they looked at Jesus, and because they thought of Jesus as one of their own, they thought of themselves as equal to Jesus, they said, why are you acting differently? They are like people who think that they're well. It's like someone going to a doctor and thinking, you know what, I'm not here to see you. I'm actually just, you know, stopping by. I'm not, I don't, I'm not sick. I don't need any treatment. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes thought of themselves. They're following Jesus, but they think they're well. And then we have Levi. And Levi is someone who knows he is sick. 
Levi knows that he needs healing. He needs help. And we know this, one, because of Levi's response, right? It says that Jesus comes to Levi, son of Alphaeus. He's sitting at the tax booth by the sea. Jesus says, follow me. And what does Levi do? He gets up and he immediately follows Jesus. Now, we can look at this and we can make it really holy and be like, wow, you know, like, that's what people did when they responded to Jesus. But I think, and that's definitely true, right? If Jesus came up to us and we, he called us, I would like to think that I would get up and follow. But we also can look at Levi and look at his life and you know what? Learn something about it. Because one thing we know is that he was at work, right? It says he was sitting at the tax booth, which means he was a tax collector and he was sitting at the tax booth. Now, today's Sunday, uh, and that means tomorrow is Monday, right? I'm sorry to have to break the news here. I know that a lot of us, we like to hold on to that illusion of the weekend for as long as possible. Um, and we have work tomorrow, right? Many of us work, and on Monday, we have to get up and go to the office, go to our place of work. And some of us probably hate our jobs, right? Um, I, I know uh, I, I, I work from Monday to Friday, and it's not, I'm not crazy about my job. I'm, I don't like it sometimes. I know my wife... I hear her complain about it, and she hates her job. Many of us hate our jobs, but I think it's safe to say Levi probably hated his job more because Levi was a tax collector. Now, if you um, have spent some time in church, you know that we don't like tax collectors in the Bible for some reason, right? But just in case it's never been explained, the reason why tax collectors were so despised in this culture, in, uh, in, in the culture that we see here in the Bible, it's because of how the system of taxation worked in the Roman Empire, right? Um, I'm guessing not many of us like taxes, right? None of us are, like, thrilled to have to pay taxes, but I think I can assume that most of us, we understand that we have to pay taxes, and I think more importantly, if you met someone who worked at the IRS, I don't think any of us would, like, disdain that person, right? We would just, you know, it's not, it's, we would probably be really, I would be really interested in learning what that's like, but uh, I don't think any of us hold, like, the, the guy at the IRS personally responsible for, like, our taxes. But that's because we have a very diff different system of taxation. In the Roman Empire, the way it worked, and it's important to note that this was the Roman Empire because Israel, this region, was actually um, governed by the Roman Empire. They were an occupied people. The Roman Empire came over, took over, and when they take over, what they want is money, right? They want to collect taxes from these people. But instead of taxing, uh, you know, the, the sale on um, goods and things like that, what they would do is they would hold an auction, and locals from that region would bid to have the right to tax the people. And uh, they would bid, and whoever bids the highest would win that right, and then Rome would get its lump sum of tax revenue, and now it was on the, these, these local people, these tax collectors, to do whatever it took, and they did whatever it took to get that money back from the people. And they had the, the legitimacy, the authority of the Roman Empire, including all the Roman centurions and legions, to say, you know what, I am going to do whatever it takes to get my money back, and, and then some. You, it's not hard to imagine that tax collectors were disdained by their own people, right? They were seen as people who were exploiting their own, right? They had betrayed their people to the Roman Empire, and not only that, but now they were going in there and, taking, and they were taking their money. But on top of that, if being a tax collector was unloved enough, it says that Levi was sitting down by the water, right? This is all taking place in Capernaum, which is a city, uh, it's a small city by the water, and 
When it says that Jesus went down, what does it say? I should know this. <laughs> he went out again beside the sea. When it says he went down beside the sea, it doesn't mean that Jesus went down to the beach for like a beach day. He went down to the, the sea where people were working, right? This would have been a, a fishing town, a fishing city. And your primary income in Capernaum would have been from fishing. And it says that's where he encounters Levi, which means Levi is at the tax booth at the dock. So not only is he a tax collector, he's the tax collector that is responsible for taxing the fishermen, right? Fishermen in any society were never rich, right? Especially in this case. And so he's there. He's the face of the tax collectors, right? There were many tax collectors, but Levi is the face. He's the one that they see every day as they come in from a long night of fishing, right? A long night of trying to put bread on the table for their families. And who do they see? They see Levi. Something tells me they weren't cordial. They weren't professional with Levi. It wasn't professional courtesy between the fishermen and the tax collectors, right? Levi was disdained. He was hated. He was excluded. It was, it, tax collectors were excluded from society. They, they, and not just themselves, but their family would have been excluded from the synagogue. All of society is saying, you know what? We don't like you. We don't want you. We hate you. He experienced this every day. He experienced this, this hatred and this disdain. And you know what? In my, um, my theological imagination, I, can, I, I imagine, I don't know this, it's not in text, but I imagine that, you know what? Maybe he took on some of that, right? Taking all that hatred every day. And so he might have, I think it, we can safely say, Levi would have hated his job. And so when Jesus comes along and says, hey, follow me, what Levi is hearing is, there is this, this rabbi Adored. He's being followed by crowds of people. Normally, these scribes, these Pharisees, these rabbis, they don't want me. And yet, he comes to me and says, follow me. Is it any surprise that Levi immediately got up, quit his job on the spot, and followed Jesus? Because there are two types of followers, right? There are those who are following Jesus, but they don't think they need Jesus. They think they're well. And then there's guys like Levi, who know that they need help. They know that they don't have their life together. They know things are a mess. They, they look at their life and they're like, I don't know how I got to this place. And then Jesus comes along and says, you know what? Follow me. So it's no surprise that Levi gets up and follows him. And what happens when Levi follows Jesus? Verse 15. And he reclined at, his ta at, the, he reclined at table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. Levi fall, it go, it, the story goes to Levi's house where Jesus is reclining at table. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to answer the call to follow Jesus? It's following a guy who shows up at your house unannounced with a bunch of people, right? Jesus is, frankly, the worst kind of friend, right? If we had a friend like Jesus, you know, we sing that song, right? What a friend we have in Jesus. What we're singing is, Jesus, I want to follow you. Come unannounced to my house and bring with you all these people. And this image is not just coincidental. It's significant because for two reasons. One, it says something about where Jesus goes when we follow him. And it says something, too, because it's about who he brings with him when we follow him. So where does Jesus go? It's, I said that Le Jesus goes to Levi's house. Now, this is not just a funny image, right? Though it is kind of funny in my head. I, I do think of, I, when I read this passage, I do think about Jesus kind of, you know, Levi's like, yeah, I'll follow you. And Jesus is like, all right, he's like, where are we going? He's like, we're going to your house. And Levi's thinking, you know what? 
uh, now's not a good time, you know. I left really in a rush this morning. Things are a mess. And I, I imagine that, you know what, to a certain extent, this is uncomfortable for Levi, right? Because going to someone's home is personal, right? Our home is our personal space. We might even say our homes can be a sacred space. Because what is it about our homes, right? What is it that makes inviting someone over to our homes difficult? Is that it's revealing, right? This is especially the case for us right here, for all of us who live here in New York City. Inviting someone into your home is really a, it's a challenge. It's a lot easier to meet someone at the park, uh, meet someone at a restaurant or a bar, because to invite someone to your home is to have them come in, to come into your living room, to come into your bedroom, your kitchen, your bathroom, and especially in New York, because let's be honest, for some of us, it's all the same room, right? And they're going to come in, and they're going to see everything. They're going to see your dirty laundry. They're going to see your dishes that are piled up. They're going to see the weird way that you organize the stuff in your kitchen. And, 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 and you're going to question, wow, like, is this who I really am? And that's the reason why, whenever growing up, um, and I, I'm a pastor's kid, so we would often have people over. That's why growing up, our house was never more clean than when we had people over, right? I mean, maybe some of you relate to this. My mom... I, we had three boys, so our house was just chaos all the time. Things were just perpetually broken, and everything was everywhere. But my mom, anytime, especially Sunday, like, so like the weekends, if, someone, if people were coming over after church, uh, we had to clean our house and get everything prepared. Why? So that way people think that we're someone that we're not, right? That we're not a house that's filled with three, you know, teenage boys running around breaking things. And we do this, right? We do this because... In, in reality, it's not just, I mean, I want to believe that we do it out of hospitality, and that's some of it. But if I'm honest, the reason why I would clean my house if you're coming over is because I want you to see and encounter a better version of me than I am, right? I don't want you to see the real me, right? If you came over to my house and I, and I had some time to prepare, you would walk in and you would think of me that I'm the type of person that my wife and I are the type of people who just casually burn designer candles, just, you know, we just have candles burning all the time, right? Because why not, right? They don't cost $50 a pop. Just burn that thing. And you would, and you would think, I, I'm clearly bitter about this candle, sorry. Um, and you would think, you would look at our, our living room and our couch, and you would see these, like, designer throws just, you know, just casually thrown on the couch. And, and it's like, oh, it looks like he just threw it there, but somehow it just worked. And you would think that we didn't spend, like, five minutes rearranging that throw so that way it looks like we didn't care, right? And, and that's what you would think of us. When in fact, that's not what our house is like. If you walked in unannounced, you would realize that our house smells like microwave leftovers, that that designer throw that was so you know, effortlessly thrown on the couch is actually spending most of its time on the floor in a bunch because I use it for my like, midday naps. And you would realize that our life is, that we're, we're kind of a mess, as maybe all of us are. But we do this because we want people to think highly of us, right? And, that's, and there's a pressure when you let someone in and, so, and, that's, and it was much more so in that society, right? If we care about our homes, if we care about entertaining people, it was much more so in that society. In Luke 11, Jesus is teaching the disciples and his followers about praying, and he says, suppose you have a friend, and you go to him at midnight, at midnight, people, and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I have no food to offer him. This teaching only makes sense in a society where that could happen. We, if someone comes to my house at midnight and expects me to have food for them, I, I mean, I'll be, 
I mean, first of all, you're late. I don't know what time you left home, but you should have left earlier. Midnight, it's late. And now you want me to have bread? I'm not, first of all, I'm not going to go bother my neighbor on your behalf. I mean, you have an, you know, order DoorDash or something. But in that society, hospitality was tremendously important. We see this also in the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, Abraham hosts three angels, and it's held up as faith. In the following chapter, those angels are then attacked and accosted, and we're given this contrast of hospitality. Hospitality was important. And so Jesus shows up at Levi's house, and he has this huge crowd, and all of a sudden, everyone is seeing Levi's life, right? They're seeing all of his stuff. He didn't have time to do the laundry or the dishes. You know, he didn't uh, have time to take the Torah down and dust it off so that people think that he reads it often, right? I mean, we all do this, right? Our, our Bibles are collecting dust, but we want to make sure that when people come over that we know, like, it's front and center. Like, hey, I read that thing once in a while. And Jesus comes into his life, and it's a mess, as all our lives are, as all our houses are, right? And we think, I think many of us, myself included, think that, you know what? I can't let people in. I can't let Jesus into my life until I've cleaned it up, right? Because why would Jesus want to come in? But here's the thing. Jesus comes. He comes in. It's a mess. And he says, don't worry about it. I'm coming, and I'm glad to be here. Jesus comes first, and actually what we see is that the cleanup happens later on. First thing is where Jesus goes. He comes into our lives. Even if it's a mess, he comes. The second thing that we see is who Jesus brings with him. It says that many were following him, and we're given a list of some of the people who were following him. And they, if we look at this group of people, what we see is that this group of people, these tax collectors, these sinners, the scribes and Pharisees, they represent this wide range. You might say, the, date, the, the, the wide range of people that we and Levi would encounter on a day-to-day -day basis, right? Let's talk about the tax collectors. We have tax collectors, and we know, uh, I just gave a whole explanation of who they are, but for Levi, you know who the tax collectors are? They're his co-workers, right? Levi was a tax collector. Jesus shows up with tax collectors. These, are, these guys are Levi's co-workers. Imagine if Jesus showed up in your life if you know time to prepare, and he's showing up with your coworkers, your colleagues, your professional relations, or he's showing up with the coworkers you like, the coworkers you don't like, and that coworker who you sent a passive-aggressive email to right before you logged off for the day, right? He's showing up, and you had no time to prepare. So we have the tax collectors. We have sinners. We use this word in church, but it's not something that we use in our day-to-day -day life. We don't have sinners. We don't, we don't, we, at least I don't go around, you know, thinking of groups of people as sinners. Maybe you do. I don't know. Um, no judgment there, but I think the word that we would probably use is like outcasts, right? And we don't go around calling groups of people sinners, but we have people in our society who are outcasts. Think of the homeless. Think of the mentally ill. Think of the people who are sleeping on the subway. So he's showing up to your house with these people. And finally, well not finally, we have the scribes and Pharisees. These are the, the powerful influential people in our lives. Once again, a Bible term, right? We don't have scribes and Pharisees. But we have people that we want to impress. We have people in society that when they show up, we're just, you know, we do, do a double take of ourselves, make sure everything's fine, right? We want to make sure that uh, we're presenting the best versions of ourselves. Maybe this is not your coworkers, he's not even your boss. Maybe this is the CEO of your company. Or maybe it's celebrities, right? Or that influencer you follow on Instagram who you, like, secretly wish you can run into in real life. Or maybe it's... Um, that person that you connected with on Hinge and you're hoping to impress, you know, give the best version of yourself, Jesus shows up with these people as well. 
And though, and finally, though they're unnamed, we also have to recognize that Levi's family and household are there, right? This is Levi's house. So we got all these people here. And, in, and, it, it, and I look at this, and I think this is a nightmare, right? If I were in Levi's shoes, this is a nightmare, because we're having worlds collide here. The other day, um, I was um, on a walk with a uh, pastor um, in the city who is, you know, I would say, fairly influential, someone I definitely want to impress, right? We were, we were meeting, and we, we went for a walk. We are walking around, and... Uh, a homeless person walked up to us and asked us, for, he asked for some change, right? He asked for some money. Now, I'll be honest, if, that, if I was just walking by myself, if I was just walking around the city and, and some guy, and, and, and it's not even this, this is not even a crazy situation because this happens all the time. He says, you know, uh, you know can I spare some change? I just would say, sorry, I can't, and I would just move on. I wouldn't even think about it. But because I was walking with this, this pastor who um, I want to impress, I was hoping to get some, you know, of his backing and support, I, I hesitated. I wasn't sure what to do, right? What do I do in this situation? Uh, do, I, do I give this guy money? Um, do, I, do I say no? Should I offer him food maybe instead? Bread? Like bread of life? Do I need to preach the gospel to this guy now? Like what's going on? What's, my, what's the expectation here? And it, it gets awkward because worlds are colliding, right? I'm not just by myself anymore. I can't just be myself. Now I have to act a certain way because I'm with this pastor. And then imagine how much more awkward these kind of situations would be if our coworkers were there, right? And then the add-on, maybe your family. Maybe you're, you're, you, ha you have your grandma there with you or your mom. And then I, I add on, let's say, so for some reason, you're on a blind date as well, right? I don't know why you would bring someone on a blind date like that, but you wouldn't know what, I mean, that sounds stressful because that is worlds colliding. We, we don't want to be truly seen, right? And so the strategy that we often employ is to segment and compartmentalize our lives. But when we follow Jesus, when he, he comes into our homes and our lives and reveals our brokenness and dirtiness, and when he comes in with all the people in our lives, it, it makes us uncomfortable, right? We can no longer compartmentalize these relationships. We can no longer choose to act one way in one situation. We can't hide ourselves. And so it's not surprising that oftentimes we resist. We resist Jesus coming in. Right? I, if I were Levi, and, this is, and if I knew this is what following Jesus was, I would probably second-guess leaving my tax collector job. Because this is what happens when you follow Jesus. And we resist, but what happens when we do allow Jesus in? Instead of resisting, we just let it happen and say, Jesus, come into my home, bring with you my coworkers, you know, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, the outcasts of society, what happens? We become whole. That is what Jesus offers us. The ability to become whole, to become one, to be restored. I imagine that because of this, Levi became whole. Now, in the Christian tradition, we understand Levi to be the disciple of Matthew, and if that is the case, that is a restorative process, right? Not only to go from being a tax collector to being one of Jesus' 12, but even excluding the, the larger Christian tradition, just looking simply here at what we have before us, what we can see is that Levi's identity would have been transformed. It would have been transformed because of this experience. Levi before this was just a caricature of a person, right? If people knew Levi, if people thought about Levi, you know what they thought of him? He's that jerk 
down at the docks, taxing his own people, exploiting his own people. That's who he is. We hate that guy. But now, all of a sudden, the crowds, his peers, his society, his village, everyone from the Pharisees to the outcasts, you know what they're going to think of Levi now? He's the guy that hosted us. He's the guy that hosted Jesus. Because of this, because he led Jesus in, he is made holy. In John 17, Jesus prays what is often called the high priestly prayer. And in it, he prays that we, the believers, would be one as he and the Father are one. And it goes, John 17, um, verse 21, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you have sent me and have loved me, loved them even as you have loved me. Now when people read this passage, they, they make it about unity between believers. And it is. Right? It, it is about the unity that should be shared among believers. But it is also about the unity that we should have within ourselves. For how can we, as believers, or as people, be united to another person if we ourselves are divided? In the next chapter in Mark, Jesus teaches a house divided against itself cannot stand. Simply put, how we, can we begin the process of truly being united in Christ with others when we ourselves are not whole people? When, whenever um, I'm out and about, and people learn that I'm a pastor, uh, there are some people who like to just like, for some reason, they're like, oh great, this is my opportunity to like ask all the big questions and make it really hard for Ben, right? And without fail, pretty much, after, pretty, like, after like the hot social topics, the question that comes up the most, especially with Christians, is Christians are obsessed with trying to understand the Trinity, right? Everybody wants to know, like, well, can you explain the Trinity to me? And I'm thinking, first of all, like, I don't even know if I got that down. But if I could be honest, sometimes my, I, I, I wish sometimes I could say, you're busy trying to understand how God is three persons in one being, and here you are, and I am, struggling just to be one person in one being, right? We cannot begin to understand how God is three in one, how God can be three persons who are so in love, so united, so whole that they become one, when we ourselves are not even the same one person that we are today, as we will be tomorrow at work, that we will be tomorrow, later on in the subway, that we will be later on with our parents, with our, with our loved ones, right? Sin is not just brokenness with others, right? Sin is not just me being mean to you, me sinning against the other person, but actually sin manifests as brokenness within ourselves. When we say we are broken, I mean that literally. We are people who are broken apart. We cannot even be one. Paul talks about this in Romans 7 uh, when he's talking about sin, and he's saying, I don't even understand myself. He says, and this is the New Living Translation, the trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. How many of us relate to this, right? We want to be one way. We have ideas of what we should do. We have ideas of how we should be, and yet we don't do that. If we're honest and we're looking at ourselves and looking at our lives, we wonder, why do we do this way? If I'm looking at that interaction with that pastor and that homeless person, I, I know what I should be doing, right? And I wish I could just simply express that, you know what, I don't do what I want to. 
I wish I could say, hey, man, like, I actually don't know how to respond to you. Um, I, I want to help you, but I, I, I'm, like, too tied in with my money, right? And, and, and I wish I could explain this to my friend and be, you know, like, I really struggle with giving up control, right? Money is not just a greed for me thing. It's a control thing. And I wish I could just let go of control and really live up to what I say. I say I believe in Christ. I say I believe that God is in control. But turns out, I really believe in money. But no, none of us talk that way. None of us are that honest all the time, right? But when we follow Jesus, the healing that we receive through his death and resurrection is not just that we get a ticket to heaven, though we do, that's nice, but that we get to be transformed people who become whole. We get to be the kind of people who, when we go out into this life, we get to be one whole person. We, don't, we get to be the same person that we were at work, to the same person we are at church, and the same person as family. We get to say, come in, look at me. It's broken and messed up, but you know what? I'm, I, Jesus came in, and he's okay with it, so you can come in and see it. We begin this process of becoming whole. Instead of being these split personalities, we begin to become whole. I want to return a second to um, my doctor and his office. After he uh, gave me, you know, he, he sent me to get my vaccine, he, you know, before I'm leaving, he said, he, he's very nice, and not to, he was trying to be very nice about this, and he said, you know, Ben, but like, in all seriousness, um, you could benefit from some, like, diet and exercise, right? And of course I said, yeah, I do, you know. <laughs> Don't worry, it's good. Um, never mind that my weight hasn't changed since high school. Actually, it's good, just gone up. Um, and he's like, well, you know, the, the, the important thing is really consistency. Like, you know, like, it's really just about being consistent. And of course this makes sense, right? I exercise, and every once in a while I'll, I'll get really into it, and I'll sweat and, you know, have a good workout. But you can't lose weight just by exercising once in a while really hard, right? Because that's just a small fraction of our days. None of us are professional athletes who are working nonstop. You know, at best, if you have a really great habit, you might have one hard workout a day during the week, five days a week, right? That's really impressive. If you do that, good for you. But that alone won't make you lose weight. You need to also diet, right? Because what do we do all day? We spend most of our days, like, you know, thinking about food and then eating it, right? At least that's me. Maybe that's just me. Uh, <laughs> maybe I revealed too much of myself there. Take that back. But the thing is, diet is more important than exercise, and we know this. And you have to be consistent, right? It would be a fool that says, you know what? Um, I'm gonna just diet when I see my doctor, right? Uh, right before I go to my doctor's appointment, the meal right before that, I'm gonna have a salad. But the rest of the time, I'll eat McDonald's and Taco Bell and whatever. Um, and then, and then, and. And I'm gonna go to my doctor and say, you know what, yeah, I, I've been dieting, right? Only a fool would think to do that thing and think, you know what, that's how you lose weight. Or only a fool would think, you know what, if I work out once a week, you know, I'll, I'll get in shape, right? No, you're not. Or to replace one, sh one Coke with a Diet Coke, that's not gonna do it. If you want total transformation, if I want God to transform this soft, you know, plump body into his image of what I was supposed to be, it's going to take consistent, constant transformation, right? I'm going to have to let what my doctor said actually get into all of my life. I will actually have to listen and say, you know what? I, every meal has to be healthy. Actually, I actually have to be consistent with my exercise. I actually have to make healthy choices all the time. But the thing is, if we look at our plan for spiritual transformation, if we ask ourselves, how do we actually expect to be spiritually transformed? I think if I look at my life, my plan for spiritual transformation, it's worse than my plan for my diet. We exercise only once a week, we eat junk food all week, 
We, have, we hide our unhealthy habits. We w- don't wish to acknowledge our chronic pain, our brokenness, and say, you know what, Jesus? I'm fine. I'm not that sick. I don't need that much healing. If you want to be transformed, we need to be a little bit more like Levi. We need to be, we need to recognize that we are broken. We need to recognize that, man, our life, we don't have it together. And say, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. If that means you're coming into my house unprepared and seeing all the mess, seeing all the brokenness in my life, all right, come on in. If that means, Jesus says, I'm not going to, and I'm going to make it hard for you. I'm going to bring you, bring in and ask you to follow me with your coworkers. Be with me and your family. Be with me and all the broken people in this world. We have to say, you know what? Let's do it. For the people, for if you are a believer, if you are a follower of Christ and you're wondering why you are not experiencing the kind of spiritual transformation that you read about in the Bible, if you're wondering why you're not experiencing the kind of spiritual transformation that actually makes you want to talk about being a Christian, if you're wondering why you are a Christian but don't want anyone to know it, begin by asking yourself, what, what's my life look like? Do I look a little bit like Levi or do I look like Ben and his diet plan? And for some of you, if you are new to this, right, if this is the first time you're hearing about Jesus and what this life is, I want you to ask, do I want transformation? The question that you need to ask is, do I need a change in my life? Do you have a desire to be healed, to be made whole? Because if you do, the one who can, the one who can heal, the one who can transform, the one who can make you whole is calling. And like Levi, what we all need to do is to recognize that we are broken people in need of healing, in need of transformation. Following Christ, answering that call, is what will lead to transformation. Now let me be clear here, right? This is not an easy thing I am prescribing. This is not an easy thing that I am offering. Following Christ is hard. The Christian life is hard. But not because of the things we have to do, right? And, and, and the things we have to do, if you are a believer, the things that we are called and told to do are hard. We are called to literally give the shirts off our back. We are told to turn the other cheek. We are told to lo- show mercy, to love justice, and to walk humbly. Those are not easy things. But the harder thing to do, I recognize, and it is true, is to let Christ in and to truly transform our lives. Because Jesus is not a cleaner, right? And let me just, I'm going to wrap up by saying this. Jesus is not a maid. Jesus is not coming into your lives to simply tidy things up. I think this is the main reason why many of us resist the transformation that the Spirit wants to do in our lives, because we think that Jesus is our maid, right? We think Jesus is coming in, and we're saying to Jesus, hey, welcome to my house. My relationships at work are a little bit of a mess. I kind of got into a little bit of an email argument with my coworker. Uh, they know I'm a Christian, so that's awkward. Could you fix that up for me? Jesus, uh, my family is a little bit of a mess. My brother and I are not really on talking terms right now. Could you just, like, fix that up? You know, just tidy that up for me. We're saying, Jesus, um, I really, you know, don't know what to do when uh, these homeless people come up to me on the subway. What about to do there? Jesus, could you just tidy that up? Jesus is not our maid. Jesus is not coming in to tidy things up. Jesus is coming into our lives, into our homes, and he's bringing a sledgehammer because he's there to renovate. 
He's there to do, as we would say, if, you're, if you've ever spent any wonderful time on the New York City real estate market, he's there for a gut renovation, right? He's gonna take this thing down to the foundation. He's gonna knock down the walls. He's gonna take the pipes out. And you know what? What happens when, when you're renovating? It's gonna be messy. It's hard. It's not easy. But who among us would rather have Jesus come in and simply clean our apartments rather than completely renovate it and install all new pipes, fittings, fixtures, all new floors. When we're coming to choose our home, we want, we want that. How much more for our lives, right? Jesus is coming in, things are broken, and some of us are just asking for ibuprofen, right? Some of us are just asking for painkillers and saying, you know what, Jesus, like, I know my arm is broken, it's hanging off the side, but some painkiller would be good, right? You would be an idiot, right? I don't even think that's allowed, right? I don't think doctors can do that, right? You need healing. Jesus is coming in. He's going to renovate. He's coming to fix things. And it is going to be hard. But when we answer that call, when we answer that call and we recognize that Jesus is here for those, he's not here for those who are well, but those who are sick. And Jesus says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Fellow sinners, fellow broken people with broken homes, with broken problems, with all sorts of issues, sitting at our tax collector's booth, Jesus is calling. Brothers and sisters, I hope that we will all respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for the for you coming into our lives, Lord. I know that you are here, and in the preaching of the word, in the hearing of the gospel message, you are knocking at our doors. Lord, my prayer for myself, my brothers and sisters, is that we would hear the call, and we would respond, and we would follow, that we would leave behind our lives of brokenness, that we would leave behind our lives of, of, of our multiple fake selves, and we would leave behind all the, the things that we're holding on to and be willing to let you in. Lord, I pray for boldness. I pray for strength. Lord, we cannot do this on our own. Spirit, empower us to take this message and wh whatever is from you, Lord, I pray that we take it to heart and that we would take it not just here, but we would take it into our, our everyday lives, Lord. That this transformation would not just be at church, but that we would be transformed in all the places in our lives. Lord, give us that strength through your Holy Spirit. We thank you and pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.